0: worried about me yeah okay I won't hit anything Daniel I'm I'm fine thanks Daniel um I was at home today and uh I found out from somebody who was doing kids ministry at church today they said man you know the kids were just like totally exhausted and I just couldn't keep their attention it was just like they were burnt out and tired and I thought to myself yeah we all are You know, this time of the year, you get to this place just before Christmas, Thanksgiving's coming up, and especially you guys, students, in this sort of cycle of the year, you get to this place and you just feel exhausted. That's the way we feel. And sometimes when we're like that, it's hard to concentrate and to think about the things you're trying to focus on. And so I wanted to stop before we get started tonight and just ask God to help us to concentrate on um, this message, uh, the centrality of Christ and, and how important it is. So why don't we do that? I know we've prayed a lot for ourselves, but let's, let's do that again uh, and uh, pray that God will help us focus uh, on His Word. God, we thank You that uh, You've given us um, the definitive revelation of who You are in Jesus Christ. Um, we thank You that uh, You didn't just leave us out there groping around trying to figure out who You were, um, but You showed us. And um, not only did You show us, You uh, promised to be with us. Um, And we just thank you for that. But we pray tonight, Lord, as we think about this theme and what it means to our faith and what it means to our witness, to um, people who wonder about our faith, uh, you'll just open our eyes so we can see. You'll open our hearts so we can receive your word. um, And you'll help us to uh, enter into your word in a way that really edifies us and uh, builds us up and gives us great hope. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. A few weeks ago, Sunday morning I think it was, I said something about how I was chafing with a word. Um, You know, chafing like it's rubbing you the wrong way. And uh, for those of you who were here, I said I was chafing with the word passion. Um, Yeah, some of you laugh because you remember that. Um, And what I always appreciate is when a person uh, allows me to just you know, say what I think and get all worked up about something, but doesn't take me so seriously that they feel uncomfortable using the word passion later on. And I I want that to be the same way in this context. Uh, When we leave tonight, I don't want people going around thinking, oh man, did I say the right word like Jesus Christ, Son of God, or God, or did I say? That's not the point. I think I'd like for you to have the same kind of attitude that a guy had uh, who ran into me after that sermon in the first service. We actually were in the bathroom um, and he walked in and uh, he walked up and he said, Bob, just want to thank you for that passionate sermon. That was right after I'd said I was chafing with the word passion. Uh, that's kind of humor I appreciate. So when I'm done tonight, you can say thanks be to God, you don't even have to use the name Jesus Christ, and it'll be okay. But I do want to focus on something that relates to what I call chafing with the God thing. And it's because, as Monty just introduced to you, the God thing, the word God, is just out there everywhere. It, it means almost everything and nothing at the same time. As a matter of fact, when it means everything, it becomes nothing because it has no particular definition. And if you're living in the same world that I am, and I'm assuming you are, you hear the word God just thrown around all the time. Politicians, religious people, non-religious people. It's just out there. And a lot of times, our culture affects us in such a way that we... Don't just ask the question, how do we communicate our message to our culture, but we allow our culture to change our message. And that's the concern that I have for those of us who are trying to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ, because there's something absolutely unique about the message concerning Jesus Christ. And if you're here tonight and you're a person who says, I like the God thing, Um, that's why I'm here. I want to learn more about God. But this thing about Jesus Christ, I don't know about that. I hope the description that I'm able to give tonight will help you to understand more clearly what what it means when we say Jesus Christ is the living God. Because that's what we say in the Christian church. Jesus Christ is the living God. So what about this God thing? How is our description of God in Jesus Christ different than the description given by any number of other people, religious and non-religious people, when they use the word God? One example could be the difference between Christianity and Islam. Now that's a a heated kind of example right now, obviously, because it seems like we've got religious wars going on between so-called Christianity and so-called Islam. am not going to go there, not touching the political fray, but I just want to make a distinction between the way Islam understands God and the way the Christian religion has always understood God. Here's the distinction. In Islam, the Quran, which is their holy book, has introductory sections, sort of like chapters, in which sayings are introduced and they're called surah. It's the beginning phrase of this introductory section. Every surah, S-U-R-A, in the Quran, except one, begins with this group of words, to say... Now you make that, well what so what? What's so significant about that? What's so significant about it is this the Quran is suggesting that what I am about to say is the revelation about God. Okay? Comes from the Prophet Muhammad, and what is about to be said to say is the revelation about God. Now, how is that different from Christianity? Well, at one level, you may be thinking, I don't see much difference. When I think about the Bible, I read, even though it doesn't say to say at the beginning of every major section, I read the Bible and I think to myself, these words are the revelation about God. And at one level, it's true. The Scriptures are the revelation words about God. But there's something else that's just qualitatively different about the Scriptures given the fact that we have encountered Jesus Christ historically. The Scriptures now are understood in a different way with Christ coming into the world and they are not just words about God or revelation from God, but they are... The divine words which are revelation of God in Christ. Now you say, I still don't get it. What's the difference between to say this is about God and revelation of God in Christ? Here's the distinction. When Jesus came, he was radical, totally radical. You couldn't listen to what he was saying without getting completely rattled. And people did. He made people very angry. He made people bewildered. And sometimes he was sort of secretive about what he was saying because it seemed like he was holding what he called the messianic secret, or what we call the messianic secret, until his death. But later on, as the disciples begin to understand what Jesus was actually teaching and saying, they begin to write words that give us this new distinction concerning words about god and now not just words about god but god revealed in jesus christ if you have any if you have your bible i know some of you bring them and some of you don't and some of you just don't carry bibles but if if you've got them you want to turn with me to right near the end of the new testament is a book called hebrews and it was written to a group of people who actually were jewish and this Mysterious writer, we still don't know who actually wrote the book, was writing to this Jewish community, the small Jewish community, to try to describe to them in as exacting language as he could what the revelation concerning Jesus Christ was all about. And he begins this way. Now, consider now who he's talking to. He's talking to a group of people who would have understood the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, right? And he says to them, in the past, long time ago, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But, important conjunction, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. The Son, the author goes on to say, is the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of His being. Now what that essentially means is He's not like God. He is God. Sustaining all things by His powerful Word. This one, Jesus Christ, who is called Divine Word, after He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven the writer of the book of Hebrews says to the people who are trying to understand this new revelation of Jesus Christ, the old revelation was words from a prophet. The new revelation is actually the person Jesus Christ. That person is actually God. So no longer is it words about God it's the very living Word of God. God Himself and Jesus Christ. So we have this dual understanding of the Scriptures in the Christian church. One, there's the written Word about God. And two, there's a strange sense in which embodied in this, because of the resurrection and the eternal nature of Jesus Christ, the Word, the divine eternal Word of God is present, revealing continually God. So no longer is it just about a Word. It's about a person. Jesus came to the earth and on one occasion He was talking to a group of people and they were asking Him about His background and He said to them, I want you to understand something. I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. All the things that you know concerning God, all that stuff about the revelation of God, I didn't come to destroy any of it. Instead, I came to fulfill it. Let me give you my paraphrase of that, which I'm not just making up. What Jesus was saying is that all the law and the prophets were about me. I came to fulfill them. In other words, I came to give record concerning those words in my very life. I am the revelation of God. There are any number of revelations about God in our world. As a matter of fact, I think you know, I think it's true that I've had revelations concerning God that come from my experience with my world. I've had revelations concerning God that come with experiencing love in my wife, through my children, deep friendships that I've had over the years. I've had revelations, insights, understandings into God through my experience. I've also had understandings, insights, revelations concerning God with my thinking. I've studied hard. I've thought with as much detail as possible. I've studied a lot of philosophy. And I think there's places in my studies that I've had those aha moments those epiphanies, yes, that's God. But here's the important thing for me as a Christian. In spite of the fact that those things do happen apart from the actual reading of the Scripture, and maybe even apart from my devotional life and prayer, in spite of that, all of those revelations concerning God must be judged against Jesus Christ. In other words, the definitive revelation of God is Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ was God. So any revelation I have concerning what God might be like, which often means what I want God to be like, must be judged compared to Jesus Christ. Everything that God was and is is embodied in Jesus Christ. You ever struggled with uh, understanding God? You can do no better than reading the Gospels. Read the words of Jesus, watch His life, and you found God. That's what He came to do to be the definitive revelation of God. If we're trying to understand God, we've got to first understand the revelation of God, which is Jesus Christ. If we want to understand God, we have to understand something else. That is, that salvation, which all people intuitively know they have need of, some varying degrees, some people would say, I need salvation because I'm just not strong enough. They don't really think there's anything wrong with them. They don't necessarily see themselves as sinners, but they feel this need. Some of them just have an emptiness and they don't understand the emptiness is, is there because of sin and separation for God, from God. But for whatever reason, everybody intuitively has a need for salvation. In order to understand God, we must understand... That salvation is possible through Jesus Christ alone. The Christian message is this there is no other way to salvation than through Jesus Christ. You might say, wow, that's just so totally arrogant, Bob. Can't say that where I live. I understand. It sounds arrogant, and it would be arrogant. Number one, if I was saying it about myself, which I'm not. Number two, it would be arrogant only if it were not true. But open yourself up to the possibility that it's true. And if it's true, is it truly arrogant? or it is the truth of the message of love. You know, if I were to say to you, the way to Indianapolis is to take this road, and you knew nothing about Indiana, and you had no road map, and I knew that that wasn't the road to take, and I knew there was really only one road that was going to get you there from here. And I didn't tell you what that road was. It wouldn't be loving of me. Nor would it be arrogant of me if I knew that there was only one road from here to get to Indianapolis if I told you what the road was. Jesus Christ is the one who said it. He said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And a lot of times we look at that statement and we say to ourselves, ah, difficult evangelistic statement. A difficult, sort of straightforward, arrogant statement. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And I can understand that because I've seen the, the anger on people's faces when I've repeated Jesus' declaration. But there's another thing that Jesus is saying in that statement that I always try to communicate to other people. It's in the context of uh, one of His disciples. His name is Thomas. And Thomas says to Jesus, just before Jesus is about to leave the earth, He says, "Um, How do we know how to go where you're going? Because Jesus says He's going back to the Father. And Jesus looks at Thomas and He says, Thomas, you don't understand. After all this time you've been with Me, you still don't get it. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Me. And then, get this, then He goes on to say this. And this is what's so often missed. He says to Him, I and the Father are one. Let me put it another way in a paraphrase. The reason that Jesus is the only way to God is because you can't get to God Without going through Jesus, because Jesus is God. To find God, you have found Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the one who reconciled the nastiness of sin in his own body on the cross. The epicenter of salvation in the Christian message is one thing the cross of Christ. Because in the cross of Christ, we recognize that God was actually reconciling the world to Himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul puts it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has come. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of Reconciliation. To understand God, we have to understand that Jesus Christ is the center of salvation. All salvation comes through Him. And indeed, it's a greater message than that. In verse 21 of that same passage, Paul says this, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Monty did such a, I thought, just tremendous job last week. Of talking about the necessity of the atonement in Christ. And if you remember, he suggested that the reason the reason that only Christ could satisfy the penalty against sin is because only God can bring complete justice. Because there's no other standard of justice that's higher than God. So God has to step in and be justice. He doesn't just speak it. He becomes it in Jesus Christ. And that is salvation. God becoming justice. Taking the wrath of our sins in the person of Jesus Christ. The third thing that's important to understand God and Jesus Christ is this revelation, salvation. The third is embodiment. Because we know from the scriptures that Jesus is not just a great moral example of how we ought to live. I teach philosophy on occasion, and one of the guys that you always start out with, if you're doing in sort of any of the history, history of Western philosophy, you start out with Socrates usually. Uh, or pretty close to starting out. You may do some pre-Socratic philosophers like Thales and Heraclitus and, you know, all those guys. And 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 you might start out before Socrates. Eventually you get to Socrates after about the first week and you run into this this just giant character in the history of Western philosophy. And he's a humble guy. And he's a wise guy. And he seems to have no fear of death because, as a matter of fact, he's serving virtue itself. There's a way in which Socrates in the history of Western philosophy begins to exemplify virtue in a way nobody else has. But you know what's interesting about Socrates as apart from Jesus or anybody else as apart from Jesus is Socrates exemplifies virtues. But the virtues precede Socrates. And the virtues define the way Socrates ought to be. And he stands underneath the judgment of the virtues themselves, as he would readily admit. What's so distinctively different about Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ does not exemplify virtues. Let me say it differently. Of course He exemplifies virtue but his main role is not simply to exemplify virtues. That would make him like any other virtuous man. The life of Jesus Christ describes for us a person who is virtue. The person who is righteousness and holiness and love and justice. Not living under the rubric of those principles, but He is them. In Him, all virtue is embodied. Because it's God walking on the earth. If that's true, then the Christian message is not only that Jesus Christ is literally God in the flesh, Defining love, defining holiness, defining every virtue. But it also means, as we continue to study the scriptures, that the only way for us to get from here, which is unrighteous, to there, which is righteous, is to be in Christ. Get this. Not just follow Christ. See, I can follow Socrates and Aristotle and Plato, and any number of other great philosophers. But Jesus calls me when He asks me to be a disciple in a different kind of way. He doesn't just say, follow My teachings. He asks us to be one with Him as He was one with the Father. So the embodiment of all that is perfect and just and holy is in Jesus Christ because He is God. And then Jesus Christ, being God, calls us into a relationship with Him. And in Christ, we become new people. That's why Paul was grappling with words to try to express this concept. And it was in a little epistle called Philippians where he just spewed it out. Sometimes it was like Paul was getting all worked up and he just couldn't get the words out fast enough. I don't know if you've ever read Paul like that. Try to do a literary critique of him and how he writes. But I think this is one of those occasions he was just rolling along. He was talking about persecution and legalistic righteousness and faultlessness and how great he was before he came to Christ. He said, I was I was a, 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 a circumcised on the eighth day. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, which means a righteous fellow. I was really good. And he's rolling along describing himself. And then he just breaks out and he says, But whatever was to my profit." I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things." Notice the relational quality of the words. Not just following Jesus because He's good, trying to be good like Jesus. To know Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider all those things, whatever I had, to be rubbish that I might gain Christ. Again, hear the relational element. To gain Christ. And be found in Him. Paul's favorite phrase, in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. I can't measure up. I can't follow well enough. I've got to have the righteousness that comes through Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His suffering. Becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. The distinctive message about God is that He's revealed in Jesus Christ. The distinctive message about God is that salvation comes through Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is God. The distinctive message about God is that God was embodied, incarnate in Jesus Christ. And to be made righteous, we must be made righteous in Him, not just by following Him. Another thing that's critical to understanding God according to the Christian faith is this. I've said it in a variety of ways. But to follow God is to worship His Son. Sometimes um, our critics do the best job of defining who we are. And at about 112 A.D., okay, that's not so long after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus died, was buried, and rose again around 33 A.D., you can see not too much time has elapsed. Certainly, it was probably no more than about 40, 50 years, maybe 60, it's hard to say, for the writing of the oldest part of the New Testament. And one particular guy, his name was Pliny, he's a Roman author, was trying to describe in a letter to the emperor, Trajan, what the Christians were like. And he wrote this letter and described how they were and what they did. And Then he said this. He said there's something distinctive about them because they sing hymns to Jesus as if he were a God. To understand God is to praise him in Jesus Christ. I'm not very smart. I'm really not. Sometime, most of the time I sound a lot smarter than I am. That's a pretty sad commentary because I don't even sound very smart. <laughs> but at my age, even though I'm not very smart, I'm a little bit more wise now. I think perhaps a little bit more humble, even though not very. (laughs) And I'm beginning to understand something. I cannot understand God except through worshiping Jesus Christ. I cannot read the Scriptures and understand them. I cannot listen to a sermon and understand Him. I cannot read a book about God and understand Him. Oh, all those things help. But the true understanding of God comes through worship. Trajan got it right. They were worshiping, singing hymns to Jesus as if He were a God. Because He is. The second person of the Trinity. Fully God. And once in a fully human body. There's a lot of reasons we know that uh, that's what Jesus was saying about Himself. We know it because A first century Jew would never have been so audacious as to use a name of God and ascribe it to Himself. Moses would never have done such a thing. David would never have done such a thing. Elijah would never have done such a thing. Any righteous man would never have done such a thing. But Jesus Himself did. In a conversation with the Pharisees where they were poking around at Him and trying to figure out who it was that He said He was, He said to them, that they weren't really the children of Abraham because if they were, they would follow Him because He was coming from His Father. And they quizzed Him about who His Father was and of course He was referring to God. And then they got a little bit perturbed with Him. You can find all this in John chapter 8. And they asked Him something about Abraham and they said, Why are you using Abraham? Again, I'm paraphrasing chronologically. You're not even yet 40 years old? And Abraham's our father? And he looked at them and he said, Before Abraham was, I am. I wish I could have seen the look on their faces. These guys knew their stuff. They knew exactly what he meant. There's only one place... One person that is ever referred to as the I am that I am. It's God. And Jesus was saying to the religious leaders before Abraham was, I am, you're looking at God. We not only know it from Jesus' own words, we know it from the disciples because the disciples begin to understand what He's saying. And, and later on in the book of Revelation, the disciple John, who is called Jesus' beloved disciple, the one who is the closest to Him, he writes concerning Jesus. And he sees something that's out there in the book of Revelation. And the thing that he sees that's out there in the book of Revelation is that all the heavenly hosts are surrounding the Lamb of God, and they're shouting three words over and over again, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Why such a designation? Only such designations are reserved for God. We also see on one occasion one of my favorite passages that helps us to understand what Jesus was saying about Himself and why He's worthy of worship. He, he was um, teaching, as often He did, And some uh, people wanted to bring a man who was uh, paralytic, who couldn't walk to Jesus because they wanted him healed. They brought him to Jesus and uh, the house that Jesus was in was so crowded you couldn't get in. These guys would not be deterred, so instead of pushing their way through the door, which probably would have been impossible, they went up on the roof and they just opened up the roof. Can't do that anymore, but back then you could. Took the tiles off the roof. And they just lowered the guy right through the ceiling on his mat right in the front of Jesus. Can you imagine that scene? Here he is talking, teaching. Whoop! There's a guy in front of him. Whoa! Talk about an interruption. Um, Jesus looks at him and obviously the young man wants to be healed. And obviously these people who brought him in are people of great faith, audacious faith. And Jesus says to the young man, Pick up your mat and walk. Just get up and walk. The teachers who are standing around say, wait a minute. Um, What are you saying that for? And Jesus says to them, what's easier? To say, pick up your mat and walk or to say your sins are forgiven? Because he'd already said, pick up your bat and walk, and that your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees say to themselves, though it's not sort of listed quite that way, this guy is going over the edge. He's losing it. He's claiming to be God. They articulate it this way only God can forgive sins. Now look at that passage I'm reading and I'm thinking, well, I can forgive you your sins. You offend me, harm me. I say it's okay. You're forgiven. That's not what Jesus was saying. They knew that's not what he was saying. He was saying that the reason that everything is twisted and corrupted and broken, including our bodies, all sickness, all death, it's all because sin entered the world. And he wasn't suggesting that a person who was a paralytic like that young man was a worse sinner than somebody else and thus he couldn't walk. But he was looking at the young man and he's saying, I want to go to the heart of the issue. Young man, your sins are forgiven. That's the real root of all our problems. It's sin. And I've come to deliver you from sin. Your sins are forgiven, so just get up and walk away. And the Pharisees are outraged. And so they essentially challenged Him. And Jesus, in so many words, said, that's exactly what I meant. Your sins are forgiven. Yeah, only God can say that. And I just did. Jesus was always pretty clear. Um, on important occasions concerning who he was. Other occasions, he was rather vague for some reason. But later on, of course, we start to realize that the writers of the New Testament are pretty clear about who he is. And uh, early in their Christian meetings, apparently they already were beginning to sing hymns to Jesus that were before 112 A.D. when Pliny wrote to the emperor Trajan. Because in Philippians chapter 2, our best scholarly evidence suggests that these words were actually a hymn. A Christ hymn, they called it, that was being sung by the early Christians. And here's the Christ hymn. I wonder what the music was like. Think you can write it, Daniel? Can you give some music to this hymn? That would be kind of cool. Here's the words. (laughs) Who being in very nature God... That's Jesus Christ, because He says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God, that means God Himself, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted Him to the highest place, and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The essence of who God is is found in Jesus Christ. The essence of of what God is, is found in the cross. Paul says it's foolishness to the world, but to those who are being saved, it's the very power of God. The cross. An unbelievably stunning form of execution administered to the Son of God. You know, sometimes um, we look at the cross like the one behind me and imagine what it must have been like. That one looks pretty. The real one was gory. We also look at the cross and we say to ourselves, that was for me. And it was. But something that uh, we often just overlook is that that cross was for the purpose of making everything new. In the cross, on that day, all the twistedness, all the sickness, all the anger, all the hatred, all the murder, all the selfishness, of the whole world was embodied in Jesus Christ and resulted in His physical death. That was God reconciling the whole world through Jesus Christ. Suffering and dying and ultimately rising again. And the resurrection is the triumph over all the sin of the whole world. You know what? We're only partway through the story about God. We've seen Him revealed in Jesus Christ. What we haven't seen yet except in figurative language in the book of Revelation is the end of all things. Eventually, eventually, the God who revealed Himself in Jesus Christ, the only God, will truly reconcile all things. Bring it to a complete end. I think that uh, one thing that's just so wonderful about the message of the cross for me is this. When I was... uh, 17, I committed my life to Jesus. And now I'm 43. And the mystery of who God is in Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection just becomes newer every day. It's the only thing that renews my life. It's the only thing that gives me hope when I look at my world. It's the only thing that gets me up here every Sunday. God was definitively revealed in Jesus Christ. And He's my Lord. I I hope He's your Lord. If he's not your lord I I would just be honored if you would take him to be your lord tonight. The God of the universe revealed in Jesus Christ. The God who stood in your place and in mine. The God who's going to restore all things. The Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ. If you haven't taken him in as your lord, you can do that tonight while we pray while we sing during communion. If you have taken Him in as your Lord, take Him in again. Remember, it's a relationship. I love my wife and I've taken her on many, many dates. (laughs) And I've taken her into my arms many times. And I continue to do it over and over again. So won't you take that opportunity tonight? Just take Him in again. Say, Lord, You know You're the Lord of my life. I've said it before. But I want to say it again so I can understand You. Let's pray. God, I just give You thanks that You've uh, revealed Yourself in Jesus Christ in a way that... No one else could have revealed us, revealed you to us. You, you did it in a remarkable way. You became flesh. You showed us what God was like, and you stood in our place—not just ours, but you stood in the place of all the sin of the whole world—and somehow mysteriously, are going to reconcile the entire world to yourself in the end. And you're going to make things right. And that means, Lord, that we have an opportunity now, according to what we know of you, to submit to you, to make you our Lord. If we don't, of course, Lord, a great day of judgment will come, in which, instead of being our Savior and our Lord, you'll be our judge. We don't want to see that day. We want you to be both our. Judge and our Redeemer. We want You to judge us based on the merits of Jesus Christ, not on our own merit. And we want You to instill deep within our hearts a deep love for You so we can follow You completely and understand the depth of love You have for us. Lord, I pray for uh, someone here tonight who hasn't turned their life over to You. Then in the next few minutes, they'll just make that simple prayer a reality and say, Lord, oh Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I admit that. And I need You to be my Savior. I take You in, Lord. I want to follow You. Oh God, for the rest of us who have, we say again, Lord Jesus, come... And take up residence in our hearts. Sit with us, talk with us, guide us, lead us. And help us to follow you and find life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.